I was thinking just a second ago how when I, when I have a, when I worship, like so when I'm, I'm worshiping, even in the front row, I got my hands up and I'm singing, or I'm at home and I'm praying, or we're even just as a family, like if, like Noah, my eldest came home for a couple of days from college, and so you're like, you're giving a big hug to your kids. And I noticed something, with, even with my, my little one, little Care Bear, she's number four out of five in my lineup. She's here, hi, I love you, in this early first service. She likes attention, so this isn't a bad thing for her. But what happens is uh, when the littles, when the little ones, when they see me worship or hear me worship, they always want up. Like, up, up, daddy, up, 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 up. Or like when Noah comes home and it's like, oh man, it's good to see you, my oldest, and I give him a big hug. They have like a hug personal relationship radar. And they want in right in the middle. They'll come and hug and they just kind of will even try to get like literally in the middle. They just want to be like sandwiched in between a hug. And I think it's interesting how it's similar when I'm worshiping. It's almost like they can tell something's happening. They can't articulate it. They don't understand it. They can't wrap words around it. But something's happening and they want to be in the mix too. That's all they know. Right? So I I pick up the baby. I, just now I did it again, right? I pick up the baby since she's in here. She's not a baby. You're not a baby. You're a big girl. I pick up the big girl. And she rests her head on my shoulder and she'll just feel me breathe and listen to me sing. She loves it. She loves it. We are made to need community. Like loving, safe gloriously good community. We're made to need that. We long for community. And you don't have to teach it to them at a very young age. Kids intuitively know that they want to be in a tight, healthy, safe, loving connection. They want to be in it. They're looking for it. They're running it down. It's innate. It's in us to desire this. Lord, even now, as we... uh, as we make ourselves aware of this innate thing in us, this hunger, this longing to be a part of a group, a part of community. I mean, every wild rebel is searching for their people. Every gang member is trying to find a fit. Every little child on the opposite end that tries to squeeze into a hug is all looking to find a place where I belong. It is in us. It is in us to desire a place where we belong, Lord. I want to speak to that today. In fact, if you would just in a state of prayer, even if you're watching online, wherever you're at, if you're sitting in your living room, if you're at home, if you're listening to this, the all the people that listen to it on the podcast throughout the week. I mean, wherever you're at, wherever you're listening to this, even right now in this room, just pray this. Help me see how I can participate in community better. God, help me see how I can participate in community better.
God, help me see how I can participate in community even better. Lord, I ask in your name, the enemy always wants to point out how we are not like, how we are in tension with all of the dissonance and the spirit wants to whisper in our hearts how to participate in harmony. I pray today that as we unpack like a prism, this other glorious, unique light that illuminates love, divinely make it clear, make it clear in our hearts and minds. In your wonderful name, amen. I love you all. I love that I get to be in the house of the Lord today. Uh, it has been, yeah, that's right, it's good, that's right, let me hear you. Who's glad to be in the house of God? All two of you are happy, that's awesome. That's good, all two of you. No, I love that you're here, I love that you're a part of the church. Um, it's great to be here with you, even early service, as we begin this chain of services, either in ministries that we are a part of across city, or churches that we plant, uh, the plants that we've been a part of, um, or even campuses. Um, it's good, this is good, this is the beginning of it. 9.30 a.m. Sunday mornings begins the chain of ministry that happens around Indy, and it's good to be here with you all this morning. Uh, quick review. We are in the middle of a series, so we're week number five, I believe it is, where we are talking about love. What is love? And the important part of this, going all the way back to the introduction, is words change. So like, as you progress, as a civilization progresses, if you have a living language, which we do, the definitions of words change. So when you see the word love as it's modeled by Disney or modeled by, you know, Oprah or modeled by pop culture in any way, and as you read the word love in the Bible, like a Venn diagram, there is overlap. There are parts of it that do overlap and they are the same, but there are absolutely unique pieces to the Bible's definition of love that actually do not line up well at all with pop culture's definition of love. And so the whole purpose of this series that we've been in is to clarify to clarify, to clarify, to clarify, to make as clear as absolutely possible, especially when Jesus says love, what does he actually mean? What does he mean? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean that love is the greatest of these? What does it mean to love yourself well? What does it mean to love your enemy? We have to understand the idea of love. So quick review. Uh, first thing I'm saying is this. The way of love. If love is, so this is a few weeks ago, if love, if God is love and love is the greatest in an exhaustive list of virtues, right? First Corinthians 13, we better know what it means. If you don't know what the Bible means when it says love, you're missing a key component to your theological rubric. You must, you must, we must lean in to the idea of love as defined by Jesus in context. Um, not just literary context, but even historical context. What does love actually mean? It's a big deal in the Bible. We talked about that in detail a few weeks ago. Uh, we also talked about this. The Bible teaches that biblical love 
is the grand, or that Bible teaches that biblical love is the grand composer and conductor that leads to true harmony. So like the world is in all this dissonance. Remember we had the tuning fork a few weeks ago and um, the world is in all of this dissonance, right? Like you can't get along with people. You can't get along with your neighbor. You can't get along with your spouse. You can't get along with your kids. You can't get along with your coworkers. There's dissonance everywhere we look. And the Bible teaches that the mechanism for everything coming into harmony and being able to work together is submission to love as defined by the Bible. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that its version of love as embodied perfectly by Jesus is the mechanism in which you go from disharmony to finding harmony in the world. We talked about this also. The definition of love is under attack. And Satan, we talked about his name, the deceiver, right, the accuser, wants you to interpret love in a way that cannot bring harmony. So the enemy would love for you, you love, see, I'm using the word. The enemy would love for you, it was funny to me, uh, the the enemy would love for you to interpret your version of love in a way that causes more disharmony with your wife and your spouse and your family and the world around you. Like, that's what he wants. He wants pride. In fact, we talked about this the following week then. He wants you to embrace pride. He wants love of self to be an embracing of pride. And pride is the ancient enemy of biblical love, according to the grand narrative of Scripture. Pride is the ancient enemy of biblical love. Talked about that last week. Our text for this whole series is a deep kind of exegetical look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. So it was read earlier by a number of our missionaries. Uh, Let me give it to you one more time. So love is patient. This is our text for the whole series. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. That's what we're going to talk about today. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always, don't you love when the Bible throws those superlatives out there? It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never, the grand crescendo to that scripture that so many of us have memorized. So today we want to look at one word. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 13a. So love does not. We're going to look at the word dishonor or of course the opposite side, but what does it mean to honor others? Love does not dishonor others. Love does not dishonor others. A little historical context. Uh, This scripture was written to the church in Corinth who was was actually quite messy. Um, If you've ever walked into a church on a Sunday morning or been a part of a church and you thought, these people are imperfect. There's messy people in this church. They get it wrong. There's a little back talking. There's a little, I mean, we've even got like moral issues that pop up here and there. I want you to know that's great. You're pretty much a part of a New Testament church. Um, The illustration I've heard, though I don't like it entirely. I think it's an okay one. The church is um, not a museum to show off perfect saints. It's a hospital where all these moral, ethical, relational sick people are coming to learn how to get healthy. So you don't walk into a hospital and be like, I'm never going to come here because there's sick people here. No, that's where the sick people go to try to get better. Church is where the sick people come to try to get better. It's not a museum for the saints. Right? But a hospital for the spiritually sick. That's the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church. 
The wealthy Christians at that time in history in 1 Corinthians uh, to the church in Corinth in context, literary context, historical context, the wealthy Christians, the wealthy Christian believers dishonored the poor believers. This is chapter 11, 17 through 21. In fact, you can even read outside of that. And it wasn't just wealthy Christians to the poor. It was that the Christians in the church, so imagine this church, early church, and all these people are getting saved and coming to Jesus. But when they come into the church, inevitably you have more cliques forming. Some of the cliques are racial. Some of the cliques that are forming are like socioeconomic, where they're at in that stratus, right? Like so the wealthy to the poor. And inevitably, those that have are looking down at those that have not. Or those that are proud of their race, you know, their background, their ethnicity, are kind of picking on those that aren't like them. This is happening in the early church. So if you walk into a church today where these issues are present, welcome to the church. In fact, you're supposed to come here because this is where you get that sickness worked out of you. In fact, the way it's even worded in Corinthians, if you read the larger section of Scripture, is Paul comes down really hard. He's like, some of you, like food and drink, some of you are getting drunk, and others of you thirst. So some of you have so much, you're literally indulging in what you have to the point where it's sinful, and others thirst because they have absolutely nothing all in the same church. We also find in this text, do not dishonor others, what it's referencing, some of the Christians were also dishonoring themselves by their own actions. So not just treating others poorly, but even in their own actions, their own addictions, their own behavior, they were dishonoring even themselves, not just other people, but their actions were even a dishonor to them to themselves. Right, so this leads us, the context, historical context leads us to a really important first idea that we have to embrace. To honor, right, like living honorably is not merely you just getting what you want. And for somebody to honor you is not necessarily to give you what you think you want. So this is a great question. Then what is honorable? What is honorable? What does it mean to be honorable? What is honorable? The big idea here is we are to act in decency towards others. All right, so the next logical question is, what do you mean by decency? Well, decency is defined by God and Jesus. Decency is literally defined by God and Jesus. What is a decent way to act? You are looking at the life of Christ, the ways of Christ. You're looking at the theology of the Trinity, like the Father to the Son to the Spirit, how they interact. You're looking at the objective of God's work throughout history. Decency is the culmination of all the meta-narrative of the Bible wrapped into and embodied perfectly by the life of Christ. That's what is decent. So here we go. Popular culture doesn't decide what is decent for humanity. In fact, all through the Bible, what you find, hang with me, decency, so like the ways of God, imagine the ways of God, it's like, it's like a hand, and uh, the ways of God, you take culture and you ought to shape culture around the ways of God. What happens way too much, even in the modern church, is you take 
culture, and too many modern churches try to fit Christian values around culture, but culture gets to define what is the absolute good, and Christian virtue is always changing and adjusting to try to fit culture. The way you understand it in the greater narrative of the Bible is God's truth is the transcendent, strong, real thing, and we figure out how to do culture around that. This is what decency is. Decency is this order. Truth first, wrap culture around it. A couple things to note that are really important from this. Many dislike, many people dislike the idea of honor because it connotes authority, right? Authority. And let me tell you, people in the West don't like authority figures. I mean, let's be honest. Don't, don't raise your hand. This is rhetorical. How many in this room love submitting to your boss? Don't raise your hand. No, no. How many people in this room love submitting to your government? Don't, don't, don't do anything. Just sit there. How many people in this room love submitting to that speed limit sign? How many people in this room love submitting to the needs of your spouse? Right, like we hate, we hate the idea of submission. It's in us to rub us the wrong. We just know I don't want to submit my will. Don't forget about my will. In fact, what's popular in our culture is if we feel like we're forced too much into a submission of any kind, we call that abuse in our culture. It's abuse. And so that idea has so backtracked that anything that rubs against what I want to do is abusive. That's kind of how we've interpreted this idea. Now hang with me. The difficulty is with the ancient Hebrew, and then this even played out in their context in the Greco-Roman world, to honor means that you are submitting to something. So here would be the way to say it. We tame And we aim ourselves in a way that pleases God. That's the first honor that we make. We tame and we aim ourselves in a way that pleases God, right? And then the way it plays out with other people, to make it really kind of clear, is we treat people in a way that would make Jesus smile. We are not treating people in a way that always makes them smile, We don't look at people all around us and go, you be you. Whatever you want to be, you do it. Throw off any submission. Throw off any control. Throw off anything that hinders you. And by hinder, you mean your will as the core. And the Bible, the biblical idea of throwing off everything that hinders us is throwing off our primary desires, our primary wants, if they do not line up with Scripture, and align ourselves with the ways of Christ. So we treat people in a way that would make Jesus smile, make Jesus smile. We're trying to treat people in a way that would primarily make Jesus smile. That is the center of honor. I was in a class this last week. Uh, I'm going to invite Josh up here and pull some of these ideas together. I was in class this last week. Uh, guys, keep praying for me. 
I got to stick this out. I have one more class and I'll be ABD, all the dissertation. So I'm coming, I'm coming so close to the end of this. And, uh, and the truth is I've been in school for so long. I can't believe I'm saying this out loud. I'm actually kind of growing weary of how many papers and lectures have I, I know it's a miracle. I, but like, I mean, Josh, you understand you're steered to the end. Like eventually it's like, I'm so, so like so many lectures, so many papers for so many years. So all ABD, I should be ABD by May. So all but dissertation by May, God willing. And uh, I was in uh, a lecture series this last week. It was actually really, really good. It's, it's wonderful and it's very inspiring. And so they brought in like a neuroscientist. They were talking about like practices, things that we can do and how we're shaped by our world and how it shapes us even neurologically. So like neuroplasticity and the shaping of the mind and neuropathway. So they brought in a neuroscientist to talk about how our habits and behaviors shape the way we view the world around us. It was really good. Um, we had another uh, McMinn. I don't know if you're aware of him. He's written quite a few books on psychology. If you're not in that world, he is a, a researcher practitioner. Um, so we had him as a guest lecturer too, and we were asking lots of questions just about how we are shaped. And he used this illustration that was really interesting. He goes, in our modern Western world, okay, so Dr. McMinn, uh, psychology, psychologist, written quite a few books on this. He, in, in our question answer, he did a lecture, and then the question answer, he's like, let me see if I can describe you. Because it's really hard when you're like a fish in water, it's really hard to comprehend the water. That's always the metaphor that you hear. It's like, it's so in us and so around us, it's hard to wrap our brain around what's actually shaping us. So he said this, he goes, think of your games, like all of your games, right? Monopoly. So we started like naming games. So like playing Monopoly. Remember playing Monopoly? Maybe you still do. Monopoly makes me angry. I, I will admit it. Monopoly can make me angry. Think about Monopoly. Think about the game of life. Think about even like maybe more modern games like God of War. Think of even like Wii Sports. And what he basically said is, and we just named games, a whole bunch of games, all the games that are popular. I mean, anything from poker to Wii Sports and anything in between. And he said this, he goes, all games, all games center on winning by having the most money, power, influence, or talent, right? That's how you win. How do you win? You win by having the most money at the end of the game, having the most power, having the most influence over other people, and having the most talent, right? That's how you win. You always win, and you win by taking all these things from other people. So we've all got equal influence, and through my strategy and monopoly and somewhat luck, I'm going to take from all of you to myself. I'm going to take all of the influence that you have, and I'm going to be the most influential. I'm going to see all of your talent and raise you one. I'm going to be the best, be the top. It's in all of our games as a kid. It's in the water. It's in the water to win by having the most, taking the most, being the strongest, being the best. It's in the water to be that way. At a very young age, we are learning that this is what it means to win in life. Now, now hang with me for a second. Hang with me. Virtues. 
virtues like humility, generosity. We don't make those the win in any of our games. Right? Like, I want to be careful. I don't intend, I want to say this clearly, I don't intend to give moral direction here with Monopoly. I'm not saying it's sin to play Monopoly. Somebody's going to write that down or email me. Sorry, all my online, I love you. You can play Monopoly. I don't think you're going to hell. Um, I mean, I guess you could play Monopoly and go to hell, but Monopoly, I don't think, is the cause of you going to hell. Just saying. Love you a ton. Uh, email me at chowie at encountertraining.com if you're mad. Um, so uh, I don't intend to give moral direction here, but to merely make a point. I'm trying to make a point. In the water of the West, so like literally in the water of the West, all around us, it's so in our nature, it's so around us, it's so in the DNA of how we operate. It's in the water of the West is the assumption of what a win is. And it's by conquering, taking, hoarding, being most talented. It's in everything. And Dr. McMinn, he was like, what if, what if, he first stumbled across this years ago and started writing on it, What would our world look like? This is basically what he says. What would our world look like if people were working towards humility? In fact, I got this. Let's put this up on the screen. I want you to see this. What would our world look like if people were working towards humility as a win? Well, that seems very... How do you even play a game like that? It's so counter to how we think. We can't even imagine that. What would it look like if people were working towards humility, gratitude, forgiveness, selfless courage, generosity? I mean, seriously, like, instead of having the most in your retirement, what if it was cool to be the most philanthropic? Like, the people who gave the most were the heroes that we all wanted to mirror. It's hard to wrap our brains around that where virtue becomes the thing that we're trying to embody. So imagine a world where the win, the games, everything that you play from a young age, humility, gratitude, forgiveness, selfless courage, generosity, honor, and a whole bunch of other varying types of virtues, right? Like, what if, what if these were the win in life? What if these were the win in life? Well, Dr. McMinn, again, you've probably been to counselors that have used his work. You may not even know it. Him and a number of other uh, clinical therapists started developing this idea called positive psychological intervention. intervention. So PPI, positive psychological intervention. And this is counseling, and they've now been doing this for like 15 years. A whole bunch of therapists have been doing it. And it's this idea. So when you come in for counseling, instead of just like thinking about the past and how do I make retribution, how do I make things right, you know, how do I... Instead, they're trying to teach people games and practices to develop virtue. Um, You've probably read really small windows of this in very popular magazines. Have you ever heard of a gratitude journal? That's where this comes from. A gratitude journal is a game, like Monopoly. And you get a journal, and every day you wake up, and you think of like 10 or 20 things that you're grateful for, and you write it down every day, every day. It's a game. And the game is is to try to develop 
virtue. So positive, instead of always looking at the negative in counseling, positive psychological intervention is the tactic they were using. And they did it with forgiveness and gratitude, a number of different things. Well, they've now been doing this long enough. There is objective research on what virtue-based mental development does. We are in a mental health crisis in our country Listen to this. So this is not subjective. This is objective by all of his research. I just got done listening to his lecture and presentation of his work. Okay, so here you go. You ready for this? People that practice positive psychological intervention, like a gratitude journal, lower blood pressure, so the competition of the game win, beat, get them out. I got to stay on top of this or I'm going to lose. Increases blood pressure. Gratitude decreases blood pressure. Lower bad cholesterol. Lowered heart rate. Greatly improved sleep. If you think you're competing with all the people at your workplace versus you're grateful for having a job, you will sleep way better. Better immunity, the immune response and overall health is increased. Reduced anxiety, reduced anger, improved relationships, which they have discovered is one of the primary pieces for like health. We long to connect just like I opened with, with our kid, with my kids. As a whole, and so they have what's called, uh, there's like qualitative and quantitative. So the qualitative research side, how people, the quality of something They overall report happier. They feel happier in life. Increased optimism for life. Increased well-being by positive psychological intervention. You break the game of the world and play a new one. So he said this. This is, I'm summing up a much longer quote. I've taken out a whole lot of academic words. But this is basically what he says. The science is clear. Humanity needs to change what a win is in life. And what he said is it's embracing the old school virtues like you find in the Bible. You will be healthier and happier. It will work. Literally, what will you honor first? Honor God Okay, I'm going to make a couple statements and I'm going to be done today. God sees you. I see you. In isolation, feeling hostile. I see you feeling alone. God sees you in a place, feeling alone. God sees you always offended and always angry because you feels like you lose at everything you do. God sees you afraid of going deep with other people because it's too risky. I'm beginning to think a little bit. For many of us, 
especially if you're Christian, but you just haven't like crossed over in the heart freedom place yet. We are not rebels. We are fools. We keep leaning into the same things that always make us offended, afraid, and alone. We keep leaning into them. So I feel afraid, alone, and offended, and then I spend more hours on blogs fighting with people. We're not rebels, we're fools. I spend more hours immersed in just watching the news on TV that increases my anger, increases my loneliness, increases hostility, increases my... We're not rebels, we're fools. We keep leaning into the things that are making us miserable. How awesome would it be if you could just wake up from that game and all of a sudden be above it. There is a way to glorious peace and freedom. There is. It's a submission. But there is a way, according to the Bible. We begin to honor God first. If you would grab the next steps card, they're in the back of the chair in front of you. And I just want to ask one question. I'm out of time today. Um, Honoring God, all of his virtues, putting them first, leaning into them. As you're pulling your next steps cards out, I'll just say, uh, is Dan Levi in here? I saw Dan earlier today. Dan, I, I pick on you all the time. I'm so sorry. Dan, I love you, Dan. You're fun to talk to. Dan, uh, partially just because you're really nerdy. Can I, call, can I say you're nerdy in front of everybody? Yay to the nerds. I got like a theology brain and you got an engineer brain. Vulcan, yes, I love you. Dan says this, and, and I actually was thinking about this. Dan, I'm going to quote you in front of everybody without your permission. I'm very sorry. Um, I, Dan, I think you're 100% right. Even finishing all these lectures, it is a great time in history to be a Christian. I know the world's going crazy, the wheat and the tares. It's a great time in history to be a Christian because all of the sciences are pointing more, and whether it's engineer, classic sciences like Dan, scientist, engineer, or it's even like theology, psychology, counseling, the stuff that I spend more time in, all of the sciences are pointing more and more and more and more to these ancient ideas being way better for human flourishing than anything humanity has ever made. It's a great time in history to be a Christian. You need not fear. Fear. 
the progressive science. It's awesome. I'm literally in class like, yes, yes, yes. I can't wait to share this with people. Oh, I've got mountains more good stuff. Just keep hanging on. Not for today, but mountains more good stuff. Honor God, the virtues of God. So here's the question I just want you to, to think about on your next steps card. Is there an honorable action, virtue-centered, virtue-centered, charity, humility, grace, patience? Is there an honorable action God is calling you to make? Maybe the honorable action is an omission thing, like I have got to turn off the news. Maybe godly honor is like I am going to fast from social media for the next month. Or in my case, I'm just like, Leslie, you do social media. I'm tired of it, poor thing. I'm sorry. Or Alyssa. I can, with work, I can make Alyssa do it. And at home, I, but what do you need? Maybe it's an omission thing. What do you need to turn off? And maybe it's an action thing, so something that you need to do. What honorable action, what honorable action do you need to make? Is there an honorable action God is calling you to make? So let me pray over you, and then I just want you to reflect on that on your card. So think virtues, that's the honor, is virtues, godly virtues. Lord, in your name I ask, that you would help us to walk the road of honor. And walking the road of honor often means stepping away from something and stepping towards something intentionally. So for some people in this room or watching online, they need to make an intentional step away from something. And for some people sitting in this room or watching online, they need to make an intentional step towards you, an area where they need to lean into generosity. They need to lean into forgiveness, lean into gratitude. They need to lean into what it means to live honorably to you. Jesus, speak to us. Let your spirit speak in this moment. Thanks for listening to Sunday Sermon on the Made for More podcast. If you are not connected in a church community, we would love to connect with you. Send us a message on social media or fill out a digital next steps card at encountertrinity.com slash next steps.